2 Kings chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me. I'd like to tonight, it's a lengthy section, Lord willing, potentially look at chapters 18 and 19 because it kind of is a running narrative uh, of what takes place with King Hezekiah who now comes to the throne and the efforts of the Assyrians who have, remember, already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and taken them into captivity and now are beginning to pressure the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, we saw last time as uh, the Spirit of God was revealing to us sort of the fall of the, uh, the uh, northern kingdom to the Assyrian Empire in a few phases. They came in, they gradually weakened uh, and began to capture and take captive the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes uh, have now fallen. We saw there the second and final deportation that took place in 722 BC when the Assyrian Empire begins to take the remainder of the people from the north and Samaria as it's often referred to uh, captive and they displace them then in other territories and as we said was the practice of the Assyrians they would capture a territory take the people of that land who really were those who had strength and potential uh, and people who were influential and they would then displace them in other captured territories. They would leave the weak and the poor in the land and then they would take people from other lands they've captured uh, and they would then populate them into other territories. So therefore you began to have in these different captured territories uh, people of all different nations and nationalities, sort of a, a, a mixed a population group of people and the idea was just to weaken them so they could never regather and to revolt uh, keep in mind just as a, a sidelight before we jump in I don't think I mentioned this last week but uh, understanding that that is kind of what happened that gives us a little bit of understanding when we come to the New Testament John chapter 4 and places like that where we see that there's a very clear animosity that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. Again, we have the story in the Gospels as well, the story of the Good Samaritan, and there's kind of that whole shock factor of why would this Samaritan person be the one who would rise up? Because Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another to a degree because a lot of what happened in the area of Samaria is you had the a intermingling of both Jewish people and people from other uh, nationalities, people who are from other uh, territories who kind of co-mingled and married. And so I hate to use the term uh, half-breed type children, but that was kind of the idea of what took place that people, the Jews anyway, uh, looked at the Samaritans as sort of half-breeds. They were partly Jew, but then they also maybe mingled together with people of other uh, nationalities and population groups. And so there was this animosity. There was as well in Samaria kind of this uh, mixed uh, theology of some of Judaism and an understanding of the Mosaic law and uh, the, the coming of a Messiah, but yet there were also these other uh, practices that were infiltrated in as well that were brought in from other religious experiences. And so because of that, it gives us a little bit of a backdrop as we see those things happening. That's kind of what happens in the area of Samaria that gives a little understanding why there was this animosity between Jews and Samaritans even in the days of Christ. So having looked at the fall of the northern kingdom, it won't be until the time of around 586 BC that the southern kingdom will fall, ultimately to Babylon. But before that happens, the Assyrian Empire, which is now strong and in power, having conquered the north, is going to make an effort to weaken and to try and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And that's really what we see happening in these chapters now as we come to chapter 18 and ahead. We go back to the southern kingdom of Judah once again, where it tells us chapter 18, verse 1, that it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elon, remember Hosea was the last king of the north before they were taken captive by the Assyrians, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So at this point, Ahaz, the, the king that was in power there in Judah, has passed off the scene, and now his son, Hezekiah, takes the throne. For a time, they sort of reigned as co-regents, but then Hezekiah now takes the throne, 
And what's interesting is we're going to see as we look at the life of Hezekiah, it's going to tell us specifically there in uh, verse 3 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Hezekiah was one of the few good and godly kings that reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was certainly one of the most godly and righteous kings that reigned during a time in the southern kingdom of Judah. And what's unique, if you remember, it hasn't been too long, Ahaz, who verse 1 tells us was his father, Ahaz was the exact opposite. Ahaz was the southern kingdom of Judah, one of their worst kings, one of their most evil and ungodly kings, who entered into all types of sinful practices introduced into the land. I mean, idolatrous practices and child sacrifice. I mean, this was one of the most ungodly, wicked, evil men who ever reigned in the southern kingdom. And now he has a son having been exposed to all those things, having been reigned in a, having been raised in a time period and personally in an actual family that was exposed to all types of evil and sin and idolatry and wicked practices and no moral bearings for his life, and yet he chooses to not walk in the ungodly sinful patterns of his father and instead to break the chain, to exercise his free will, and to worship and serve Jehovah God and really just completely turn the nation back the other direction when he comes to power. And I think it's wonderful to see occasions like this in the scripture because in the same way as we've seen that you can have a good and a godly king and then he can have a son who turns out to be a rebel and exercises his free will and walks in sinful practices and turns away from everything he learned that was good and righteous from his father's upbringing in the exact same way on the other side of that, it is also absolutely true and possible that you can have a son who's exposed to all types of filth and evil and immorality, who's exposed to family practices and experiences that are ungodly and sinful, and that's what he's indoctrinated with as he grows, but yet that does not mean that that child has to live out that same pattern for their own life. That child has the freedom with the free will and the power of God to choose to break the family chain, to break the pattern to choose a different cycle and path for their life. And what a wonderful thing to know that that is available to anyone. You know, this evening, maybe you did not have the greatest upbringing. Maybe you uh, were exposed to some pretty unhealthy things. The wonderful thing is it honestly does not hinder you from being able to serve God with a whole heart and be a fruitful follower of the Lord and to live out a righteous life. I understand those things may have a bearing upon you, but they don't prohibit you from living for God yourself. They don't have to hold you back. They don't have to determine your future. You can determine that by your own free will and seeking the Lord and experiencing his power for your life. So Hezekiah, this beautiful break now, he becomes this wonderful godly king, though he had an evil father. And it says, verse two, he was 25 years old when he became king reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem, so quite an extensive reign, almost three decades he was in power. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. Interesting, Uh, potentially because of the connection to Zechariah, maybe, though he had a very evil father in Ahaz, maybe he had a very godly mother. Uh, And it could be that it was the influence of that godly mother and the mother's side of the family as she was a daughter of Zechariah where some of his godly influence came from that helped him to ultimately choose to walk in the ways of the Lord. And he, Hezekiah, says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So again, referencing how like David, King David, uh, he was a man who had a heart that was after the Lord. He walked uh, with a heart devoted towards the Lord. And interestingly enough, let me just read to you, if I could, a few verses from Second Chronicles chapter 29, the account there where it gives more extensive details about Hezekiah. But just listen to a little of what the Bible tells us about him. It says that Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, reigned 29 years. And then it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then it says, Second Chronicles 29, that in the first year of his reign, very first year of his reign, listen to what it begins to tell us about him. In the first month of that first year, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. 
Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and he gathered them in the east square. And he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish. That's a good word, isn't it? Carry out the rubbish from the holy place. So Hezekiah comes to the throne and in the first month of the first year of his administration, the thing he puts his focus on, his campaign promise and first efforts were, we need to bring God back to the center of the nation. And we have turned away from the Lord. The, the house of God has fallen into disrepair. We've corrupted the system of worship. We've lost our moral bearings. And he gathers together those who are righteous and the priests and spiritual leaders in the land. And he says, we need to clean house. Uh, we need to clean house, drain the swamp literally, but in a sense of the house of God. Not necessarily Washington, D.C. or Jerusalem, but look, we need to turn back to God again. And he goes through an extensive process. Second Chronicles 29, 30, 31 record this incredible process of him clearing out the house of God, reinstituting worship and the worship system back to how it ought to be. Here we get a little glimpse of it in Second Kings chapter 18, verse 4 describes it just in summary form. But notice the strong language. He removed the high places, broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image. That would be the images of Asherah, the uh, obscene or uh, pornographic images that were used in this very sensual form of worship. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and he called it Nehushtan. That word Nehushtan literally just means a bronze thing or just a piece of brass. The, the idea there is the language. So it describes here some of his clearing and cleaning out of the house of God and that which was ungodly and idolatrous in his practices. One of the things we're told here is that he eliminated, he rid the people of this practice of burning incense to this bronze serpent that Moses had made. Now, that's a reference to Numbers chapter 21. Remember, in Numbers 21, the people of Israel were complaining against God and as the result of their complaining against God and their, their wicked hearts, the Bible tells us that God, as a form of discipline against them, let these little fiery serpents, these poisonous serpents come and they began to bite the people. And the bite of these poisonous serpents was actually terminal and people, when they would get bit, were dying as a result and sort of the discipline and judgment of God was falling and Moses cries out to the Lord in intercession and God instructs Moses, remember, to build this bronze serpent, to put it on a pole and to put it in the center of the camp. And he says, whoever is willing to look to that symbol, that, that you know, it's kind of symbolic representation of God's judgment, whoever's willing to look to that in faith and believe, then I'll heal them of the terminal condition once they've been bit. So in a sense, it was a, it was a, a analogy of deliverance and salvation that once you were bit by this serpent, if you look to this uh, statue, this little serpent put on a pole, which was a picture of the serpent being judged. That's why it was on a pole. It was like a serpent that had been judged. If you look to that, that the serpent has been judged, God would miraculously heal the people if they look in faith. Jesus ultimately says, in John chapter 3, that even as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up for our salvation. That if we look to Jesus in faith, we can experience deliverance from the terminal affliction of the judgment of sin that we all have facing in our lives. And so it was something that God instituted for a situation, a given situation to provide deliverance for his people. Jesus said it ultimately was a symbol of how salvation works. But unfortunately, what happened is the people after that occasion kept this thing and then they began to use it like a relic. And they began to hang on to it and burn incense to it and they began to worship uh, the, the image and the created thing rather than God, the creator himself. And they began to sort of idolatrize you know, the, the actual practice rather than looking to the Lord himself. And it began to become something that was sort of a religious practice that got the people way off track. 
and they were esteeming the religious practice and the tradition more than they were genuinely in worship to God and it became something that was a hindrance and Hezekiah when he comes around he says what are you doing that's just a piece of brass and he just broke it and he destroyed it and he's like stop this what are you doing you're idolizing something that's just a religious routine but yet the reality is, if we were to be honest, there are a lot of people who uh, they kind of have their piece of brass. They kind of have something that it's something that they kind of, you know, they offer their incense, their devotion, their worship towards, which was just intended to be maybe a, a religious practice or a spiritual routine. And yet then they esteem it to something way more than what it is. And so they take something that was just intended to be symbolic and they make it somewhat sacramental. And so now somehow there's something of spiritual value that I gain from performing this practice or giving homage to this thing or going through these rituals of, of the church that have been taught to me and they become a hindrance to our worship. And in some ways they need to be dealt with severely if we're gonna have genuine relationship with God. And Hezekiah takes and he deals with this to try and help the people turn back to the Lord. Verse five says, and he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him, quite a testament, was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Verse six, for he held fast to the Lord and he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So it references his personal dedication to the Lord as his God. It says there, verse six, he held fast. It is he clinged to the Lord and he did not depart from the Lord. He didn't cling to religious routines. He, he clinged to the Lord. He was holding on to the Lord. There was a personal devotion that he had that he would hold fast to the Lord and not depart from following him. And again, what a beautiful picture there of just a, a description of dedication in a personal way to God, holding fast to the Lord. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what tries to interfere, that you hold fast to the Lord and you say, I will not depart from him. You know, it's like that beautiful song we sing, you know, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. And again, just the idea that I, I, I'm not gonna depart from the Lord. I think of, remember what Jesus uh, said on one occasion to his disciples when he began to talk about difficult things using analogies like eating his flesh and drinking his blood there in John chapter six. And he was saying things that were really kind of shocking people because he was talking about radical devotion and that literally they needed to be sustained by the very person and life of Christ. And as people were hearing, these are hard sayings and people were beginning to depart. People were hearing Jesus's teachings and rather than coming in in greater multitudes, people were beginning to disperse. <laughs> That's a little too, I mean, that teaching is a little too intense there. And Jesus ultimately turned to his disciples, remember, and he said to them as people were departing, he said, do you want to leave also? And they said, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And again, there's the thing. They may not have fully understood. Wow, I mean, that, that's some intense teaching. And, and you're calling for a level of dedication that may even be above our heads. However, Lord, we're not letting you go. We found the Messiah. We found the Savior. We found eternal life. Even though we may not understand why life's going the way it is or what's going on, the one thing we're not going to let go of is you. We're not going to depart from you. We're going to hold fast to you and stay dedicated. And, you know, I think there's something in the heart of a person that it's essential that we come to that place, that no matter what's going on around us, that that, that, that is our, our basis and our foundation, that we are going to hold fast to the Lord and not depart from him. And you know, one of the, the, the clearest ways to do that, verse six tells us, by keeping his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll obey my word. And he tied together obedience to the word of God to love and devotion towards him. Uh, and so one of the best ways, well, what does that look like? How do I hold fast to the Lord in my personal life? How do I not depart from the Lord? Obey the word of God. 
keep the commands of God, live according to God's word, let that be the authority over your life. And that is the really primary way in a lot of occasions where you can show that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength by keeping his word and that will help you to keep yourself clinging to him and not departing from him. Well, because of his personal dedication to the Lord as a man of God and a leader and a king, the Lord blessed him because the Lord's presence and hand was upon his life. Verse seven and eight describe that. It says the Lord was with him and he prospered wherever he went. Again, the the hand of God's blessing upon that life of dedication to the Lord. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So again, he he refused to submit to the king of Syria. And honestly, we'll see for about the first 13, 14 years, he stood strong. You read Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32 in the beginning part of the chapter uh, describes how he stood in dedication to the Lord there for a long period of time, refusing to submit to the uh, to, to submit to the Assyrians, and he stood faithful to the Lord, and he refused to just acquiesce and to compromise in submission to the king of Assyria, despite the pressure coming against him. Ultimately, we'll see Hezekiah does make some mistakes, as we all can at times in our journey, but uh, for a long period, he resisted. The king of Assyria did not serve him and he subdued the Philistines. So again, not only was he uh, overcoming that which was coming against him in temptation, but he also was actively taking ground, taking territory, subduing the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now, verse 9 down through verse 12, the Bible just gives an insertion to recount the fall, once again, of the northern kingdom here. It's kind of probably given to us in contrast to the pressure coming against the southern kingdom. Verse 9 says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the king of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of the three-year siege, they took it. And the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, in the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken, and the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria. And he put them, that is, the people of Samaria, in Halah by Habor, the river goes on, and in the cities of the Medes, again, he displaced them into different territories. Because, and here's the reason why the northern kingdom fell, the Bible tells us the spiritual root to it, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. So again, just sort of a historical reference. We already looked at these things last week. Another reference to the fall of the northern kingdom, which we looked at in detail last time together. But we're told this happened, the fall of the northern kingdom, in the sixth year of Hezekiah. So it was in the sixth year of Hezekiah's reign, he, in a sense, watched the northern kingdom fall to the Assyrian Empire, and God wants us to know very clearly the root of the issue was a spiritual one. It says, verse 12, it was because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, but transgressed against him. God was speaking to them, trying to cause them to live in a right manner and to turn back to him, but yet they continued to hear the voice of the Lord. No, it doesn't say they couldn't hear. It says they would not hear. God was speaking, God was communicating to them, but they would not obey the voice of the Lord. You know, always important for us to remember, anytime when we get ourselves off course or we derail in some way, we are being completely unjust and unfair to admit that the voice of the Lord was speaking to us in the process. The Lord's always faithful to speak to us. He's always faithful to warn us, to you know, uh, take shots across our bow and to caution us and to, to kind of keep us from continuing to progress in paths that are going to lead to our own destruction and devastation. The problem is, is sometimes we can kind of shut out God's voice or we just choose to flat out transgress, which means God says, don't do this. And we say, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway because I feel like it, because I want to. Uh, and, and this is what the northern kingdom did. And as they continue to disobey the voice of the Lord and rebel and transgression, ultimately it led to the fall of the nation. 
Well, verse 13, we come back now to the reign of Hezekiah. And notice we now fast forward to the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So in the sixth year of his reign, the northern empire falls to Assyria and is taken away captive. And as I said, Second Chronicles describes how for a number of years, these first 14 years, Hezekiah stood strong. He encouraged the people. Uh, he did everything he could to tell people, look, the Lord's going to defend us. He didn't submit to the Assyrian Empire. He held them off and he walked in faith. However, in the 14th year, after doing well and, and really uh, standing strong and resisting the enemy, it says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, which is about 11 tons of silver. That's a lot of silver. And 30 talents or one ton of gold was what he imposed upon him and assessed for sort of a tribute that he would have to pay for him to go away and to back off with some of the pressure he was bringing against the southern kingdom at this time. So very interesting. After a initial resistance to the enemy, sadly, in this 14th year, now we have record of an occasion where it seems that Hezekiah just kind of faints spiritually. And now he gives in. And for some reason, after a long period of resistance, he just sort of makes compromise. And he says to the king of Syria, you know what? I've done wrong. It's been wrong for me to be resisting you. Tell me, what, what do you want? Just tell me what the price tag is to just go away and I'll pay you whatever you want. And kind of sad to see, you know, the Bible tells us, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up or lose heart. And the Bible tells us that we're to submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from us. And often we do that and God honors that, but then sometimes in a weak moment or after a period of time of we resist, we resist, we resist, it's almost like our defenses get worn down and then ultimately we just kind of, we cave and we give in. And we say, you know, I'm just, I, I, okay. And, and then we just, we make a compromise. We make a concession with our enemy, even as here Hezekiah does. And that, that never results good for us. And so, so sad to see. Second Chronicles records such a good long stand of resistance to the enemy. And now here he is saying that he's the one in the wrong. Tell me what you want me to pay. And he now finds himself with this great amount, 11 tons of silver, one ton of gold, to have to pay his tribute as king of Assyria assesses that as a penalty. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah, look at this, stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid. And he gave it to the king of Syria. So basically, the very temple that he restored and put all the gold back onto the doors and he went through this process of great spiritual restoration, he's now the very one reversing it and now stripping the gold back off. And in a moment of weakness, in a moment where he's fainting in his own faith and confidence in the Lord, he just strips away every good thing that he's just done for the Lord and is now taking it and using it to pay tribute to the king of Assyria to go away and back off in his pressure. Well, verse 17, again, whenever you give the enemy a little bit of a foothold, he's going to take everything he can. You give him an inch, he's going to want to take a mile. And that's what a military enemy does. And, you know, that's what the spiritual enemy of our soul does as well. If you give him an inch, he's going to take a mile. You give him a toe hold, he's going to want a foothold, then a knee hold, and he's going to want a strangle hold ultimately. And so he gives him this little bit of tribute money thinking, okay, I'm going to come up with a plan. And he comes up with his own plan. If I just pay him all this gold and silver, he'll go away. He'll back off. He went away for a time and then he comes back now with a vengeance because he's thirsty for more. This guy compromises. That's what he learned about Hezekiah. You press this guy hard enough, eventually he'll compromise eventually he'll just start coming up with his own ideas and try and solve his own problems. And that's what Hezekiah does. He tries to come up with his own solution, 
how much do you want me to pay you? He comes up with his own way to fix his situation, and the enemy takes note of that, and now he's going to come in with great pressure against the southern kingdom and King Hezekiah. Verse 17 says, Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rabsaris and the Rabshekah. These seem to be kind of like uh, political leaders, like a commander-in-chief and a chief officer and maybe like a, a military general or chief of staff. These are some high-ranking government officials that he sends, titles of them. He sends them with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fooler's house. Perhaps the reference to Hezekiah's tunnel, which Chronicles refers that he built this incredible tunnel to have access to fresh water during the time when they were under siege before. Verse 18, and when they called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was over the household. Shebna was the scribe and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they came out to them. So King Hezekiah sends out now three of his dignitaries to go out and meet these three diplomats or dignitaries from Assyria to kind of have a, a dialogue. And verse 19 says, the Rabshakeh said to them, say now to Hezekiah, to your king, thus says the great king, notice the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans of power for war, but they are mere words. And whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So they begin now to, to sort of... Uh, uh, influence into the hearts and the minds of the people, particularly Hezekiah, fear and doubt and discouragement. And they say, what, what is this you're trusting in? Do you really think you're going to be able to resist the great king of Assyria, our king? And you're, notice at this point, they expose another mistake. They say, verse 21, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt. Apparently, Hezekiah was looking to Egypt as a way again to kind of come and help him militarily to maybe kind of throw off the power of the Assyrians that are encroaching upon him. And he's looking now to Egypt for help to deal with his problems instead of looking to the Lord and trusting the Lord. And again, Egypt in the Bible, as we've said so many times, is a, a, a picture, a symbol of the world. And what a sad thing that when some problem comes, some difficulty, some situation that's pressing on us and it's intimidating us and it's more powerful than we can handle, that we sometimes, rather than look to the Lord and trust the Lord, we look to the world. And we turn to the world to solve our problems. And we look to the ways of the world and the help of the world and the power of the world and we're putting our trust in that. And here you have a pagan group of people saying, shouldn't you be trusting in God? Why are you trusting? Why are you looking to the world to fix your problems? I thought you were worshipers of Jehovah God. I thought you're followers of God. Why do you keep turning to the world to fix your problems? And sometimes as the Lord's people, we can be guilty of that. You know, we think, okay, this is an overwhelming situation. I can't solve the problem. What am I going to do? Well, there's this resource in the world and Egypt's got this avenue. And if I turn there and, and we look to the world and trust the world to help us. And here he's saying, you're trusting in a broken system. And can I encourage you? I'm not saying we shouldn't be good stewards and utilize what this physical world and this world has to offer. But if you didn't notice, the world's a broken system. It's a broken system. It's something that's failing. The Bible tells us in 1 John, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. There's a pretty good indication right there. The, the world system's broken. And so therefore, ultimately, it can't be something that we fully rely on. It will just break down when we try and use it in the times when we need help most in our lives. But verse 22, look, they, they ramp up the... Uh, accusations and the intimidation the intimidation level rises even further they try and all the more sort of uh, infiltrate their minds with more doubt and discouragement they then say verse 22 but if you say to me we trust 
in the Lord our God? Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar here in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, verse 23, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if, he says, you are able to even put riders on them. So they're saying, look, just submit. Just submit to our master. Submit to the, to the enemy. There's no sense of trying to resist. Ultimately, what they're saying is, is ultimately you should just submit because it's inevitable you're just going to fail. You're just going to fail anyway. They said, look, we, we could give you 2,000 horses, but that's even if you could put riders. You don't even have enough to do that. So again, this is mockery and intimidation and discouragement and doubt. The voice of that affecting them, influencing them to try and get them to just compromise and submit and give in. And look, that's exactly the same tactic of the voice of our spiritual enemy, the devil. His voice comes at different situations we face and time periods and he tries to do the same thing to infuse with his lying voice doubt and discouragement and depression and despair and to cause us to struggle with unbelief and to not trust that the lord can come through for us and to just really paint this picture that is so horrible to make us just think i might as well not even bother trying to stand for what's right anymore it's inevitable i'm just gonna fail anyway I'm just going to ultimately lose anyway, so, so why bother fighting anymore? I'll tell you why bother to keep fighting, because the Bible tells us that we're to fight the good fight of faith. We're supposed to fight. And with God, one person with God, that's a majority. And it's the lying voice of the devil that so often is just trying to get us to submit to the enemy and to give in like here. Verse 24, they go on with their mockery. How then, they say, will you repel even one of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Have I now come up, look at this, without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up to this land and destroy it. Boy, they're getting dirty now. They say, look, think about this. Don't you realize the Lord's allowing you to be defeated? The Lord is the one that said, thus saith the Lord. The Lord told us to come here and to attack you and to destroy your life. And again, I mean, they're, they're I mean, really ramping up the tactics here, trying to cause complete confusion in their minds. And look, the devil is more than happy in his efforts to confuse and cause doubt and discouragement to even begin to use spiritual speech like that. As if somehow the Lord is the one condemning or the Lord is the one that's against us or, you know, that the Lord is the one that, that is ultimately just wanting to see. And, and again, and even to send voices into our life, people who seem to be representatives of the Lord. But yet what they say causes doubt and unbelief and discouragement and despair in our lives. Look, remember, the Bible tells us regarding the devil himself that he masquerades as an angel of light, Paul says to the Corinthians. And that he has ministers that appear, look like, represent themselves as ministers of righteousness. And that if he can transform himself into an angel of light, certainly he can have ministers that appear like ministers of righteousness, but they're not. If they're not ministers of righteousness and they're the devil's ministers, uh, they're ministers of something completely evil and ungodly, but they, they may be saying, well, the Lord says, thus saith the Lord. And they, they weave in maybe a Bible verse or talk about a few things that have some spiritual lingo. Maybe they throw around the name of the Lord and Jesus, but yet what they're saying and communicating is not true. It's contradictory to the word of God and the will of God, and it's doing nothing to help us spiritually. And a lot of times it may be sending us on a path towards destruction. And we have to be careful here. Again, this is a clear enemy in violation to uh, you know what God's plan was saying the Lord said to me the Lord didn't say that to them but they're saying this again to discourage the hearts and minds of the people verse 26 so then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah Shebna and Joah they said to the Rabshakeh in light of this pressure and intimidation please speak to your servants in Aramaic 
for we understand it. Again, those who typically were uh, you know, among the aristocracy in the culture would typically know the Aramaic. Others would know the uh, common Hebrew language. So they're saying, speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand that, but don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people who are on the wall. In other words, hey, could you stop talking in Hebrew? You're going to discourage all the people. Just like... Mock us in Aramaic, would you? I mean, you're going you're gonna to really discourage the people. Could you use a different language? But again, the, the enemy has no mercy. The Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master to speak these words? And do not the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? That's pretty gross. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice, notice, in Hebrew. So he totally disregards the request for Aramaic. And he spoke saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. So what's the voice there of the enemy saying? Don't trust your leadership. Don't, don't submit to authority and believe that God has some benefit in mind by you submitting and following leadership. Don't listen to your leadership. Rebel against your leadership. Rebel against your king. Again, look, from the Garden of Eden and prior to the Garden of Eden, the fall of the devil himself, do you know what the devil's fall is based upon? Rebellion against authority. That's how the devil fell from heaven. He rebelled against God's authority. And then he shows up in the Garden of Eden. What's his first suggestion to mankind? Rebel against God's authority. Look, this is as old as the fall of the devil. That is always the voice of the devil who perpetuates in people's ears, rebel against authority. Question authority, reject authority, fight against... Don't, don't believe that the authority that exists could somehow help you in any way. Or that they would do... So rebel, don't listen to your king. He's not going to be able to help you. Fight against him instead. Nor, verse 30, don't let Hezekiah make you... Look at this, trust in the Lord saying the Lord shall surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me, make a, a, a covenant and, and submit to me by a present and come out to me and every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one drink from the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land just like your own, of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, and a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, imagine this, the Lord will deliver us. So the voice of the enemy, trying to discourage the people from trusting in the Lord. Don't, do you really believe the Lord is going to come through for you? I mean, be practical. Look at the situation you're facing. I mean, you, just, you need to do something. I mean, that situation you're facing is, well, I'm, what do you, I'm trusting the Lord, man. I, I believe the Lord's going to come through. I believe the Lord's going to deliver us. I believe the Lord's going to get us through this or get us out of this or take us through this storm. Or I, I believe the Lord's going to come through. And what is, what is the lying voice of the enemy say? Are, come on. You got to be logical. Be practical. Be reasonable. Be responsible. That's a good one, right? In America, be responsible. Be responsible. You're just going to pray and trust God. You believe God. And, and, and the lying voice of the enemy wants to discourage us from trusting in the Lord and believing the Lord will come through, that he can answer in prayer and show up in powerful ways. And, and again, they're, they're tantalizing them as well. In the midst of these verses, verse you know, 31 and 32, they're basically offering to the people an opportunity for prosperity. Hey, just submit to us and your life will get better. You have your own vine and your own fig tree and we'll bring you to our land. And our land's a great land. I mean, you think the land of... Milk and honey is good. Wait, do you see the land we have for you? And again, what's the enemy doing? He's tempting their carnal appetites with the opportunity for prosperity. Saying, don't trust the Lord. Do what's good for yourself. 
God wants you to prosper, man. <laughs> you got to prosper. Don't trust the Lord to come through. Capitalize on whatever you can do to prosper yourself and take advantage of material blessing and prosperity. That's kind of the, you know, the key, the thing to aim for. They're kind of using this as a temptation. So they say, don't trust Hezekiah. He's trying to tell you that the Lord is going to come through. They say, verse 33, has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered the land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, they have delivered Samaria from my hand, or have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people, it says, held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Ahab, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. So uh, this taunting continues on by basically saying to the people, listen, look around you. All these other nations, the, the people of other nations, have their gods come through? Have their gods been able to save them and spare them the things they trusted and did not? Do you really think, they say, if no God has overthrown the king of Assyria so far, why would you believe, they say, verse 35, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Nobody else has been able to resist my power or my conquering thus far. And to some degree, you might say what they were speaking was true. Because thus far, none of those other false gods of other nations were able to deliver against the power of Assyria. The difference was they served the one true and living God. The God with whom nothing is impossible, that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. But what they're doing is they're mingling a little bit of truth in to try and distort the perspective and thinking of the people so that they won't trust the Lord. And they're weaving a little bit of truth in because it was true that none of those other gods helped the people and those other people got conquered. But the distinction was, look, you're, you're telling part of the truth. But the difference is our God's not like those. Those are false gods. Those are fake gods. We serve the one true and living God. And what we never want to do, listen, folks, we never want to measure our situation off of what's happened in other people's situations out in the world. Oh, well, when other people went through this financial crisis, for them, this is what happened. And they tried this. And so therefore we base our decisions and how we respond and handle maybe a financial need or a financial situation by looking at how something happened in the world rather than looking to God as our provider and in a responsible but yet way based upon faith and dependence on the Lord, believing that God can move mountains, that God can come through, that God can do amazing things to provide for us in unordinary ways. Been there through that course a few times. And the Lord can come through. You may be facing a personal situation or a trial or some circumstance and you just think, well, this is the way everybody handles this when that happens or when this happens with somebody's child, this is the way. Look, don't base your decisions and how you handle things. It may be true that is how the neighbors or other people in society, how they handle situations or their affairs. You're a child of God. You're a follower of Jesus. You're a citizen of heaven. You determine and do things differently because you're a disciple of Christ. You're a follower and a person connected to a different kingdom. And so therefore, the way we handle affairs must be based in that way. So as the people are attacking and coming against them with this intimidation, I love their response there in verse 36. It simply says, the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer. In other words, don't dialogue with the doubting, discouraging voice of the devil. Don't dialogue. Don't get into the dialogue. You know, the Bible tells us that there is a time to be still and know that he's God. 
And there are going to be times and situations in our lives when circumstances arise that seem overwhelming and it just seems so evident that there's just, there's no way, right? There's just no way. It's too, it's too difficult, too impossible, whether it's conquering a sin or some financial problem or some relational issue or just some hard trial we're in or some way the devil is just attacking and assaulting and trying to threaten us and bring fear into our lives. And our, our, you know, our, all the voices are going on in our head and around us and, and everything within us. It, we just, we're tempted to get into the dialogue. And so we, we want to start dialoguing it out. And sometimes, I'm telling you, I hear all the same voices that you do. You don't have to answer back. <laughs> There's a time to just let the voices say what they want to say. Look, we all know how to ignore people, right? You ignore people in your life, right? Then let it go in one ear and out the other. Or you let somebody talk until they talk themselves out and you say, thank you. And you walk away and think, I'm not going to listen to a thing you said, but you feel better now, right? <laughs> when we know how to do that with people as human beings. So when the voice of the devil begins to speak doubt and discouragement and fear and intimidation and worry and anxiety and depression and discouragement and, and all that stuff that wants to cloud our heads and make us just want to fall apart and crumble or just submit and give in and stop fighting the good fight, can I encourage you just like with the voice of the devil, the same thing, in one ear and out the other. Just, just don't dialogue. Don't engage. The, the king's command was, don't answer. Do not answer. Don't dialogue with the lying voice of the devil. Such an important thing. Instead, be still. Know that he's God. Resist the devil. Just submit yourself to God. And, and, and in that quietness and peace, you'll find rest. And just put your eyes on the Lord. Put your eyes on the Lord. We're going to see in the situation, ultimately, they're going to cry out to the Lord in prayer uh, well, look at chapter 19, verse 1. We'll, we'll conclude with this. We said we hit chapter 19. We do one verse, right? And so it was. When King Hezekiah heard all these things, look what he does. He tore his clothes. That was an indication something severe was going on. Covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. How do you process a major difficulty? You worship your way through it. Hezekiah is faced with this huge thing and he says, wow, that's huge. I need to go to God's house. And I'm just going to go to the house of the Lord and I'm going to worship my way through it. That's how you process difficulties. In the house of the Lord, like Job who says, Lord, you've given, you've taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And just you worship, that's how you process these kind of things. You worship your way through them because in the house of the Lord, our focus is shifted back upon the Lord and then we're not looking at the circumstance, we're looking at the size of our God, which helps the circumstance come into right perspective. So why don't we do that? Let's stand together. We'll turn our hearts back to the Lord.